Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is episode 991 of the Survival Podcast. It is Wednesday, October the 3rd, 2012, and we got another beekeeping episode in the beekeeping series. Today's going to be cool, man. We have a guy uh, that I'm about to bring on the line with you as soon as we get done with our housekeeping named Ned Farrell. And uh, Ned's been a beekeeper for 24 years. He's worked in uh, South America. I'll let him tell you about that. But he's uh, he's actually worked with what we call killer bees or Africanized honeybees down south uh, and was able to, uh, to use them uh, as, as basic honeybees. He's going to tell us about that and uh, the much safer hobby of keeping European honeybees here in the United States. And just a bit before I bring them on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Harvest Eating, the awesome, the illustrious, the infamous Chef Keith Snow, who will teach you to keep, cook seasonally and locally and how to make cooking a prepper and a life skill. You know, if you're going to have all these preps, you're going to have these homesteads, you're going to have these gardens, you're going to be going to CSAs, you're going to be going to farmer markets, and you're going to be buying stuff other than the random crap that, you know, it seems like makes up every supermarket produce section and meat section, and you're going to have these unique things, different things, or paying a little bit more for really good quality pasture pork or pastured poultry or grass-fed beef, then you want to do the best you can with it when you feed your family to it. And the way to do that is to really become an awesome cook. To me, cooking is a prepper skill. We have to eat every day. Uh, we may have to defend ourselves at some point, but we have to eat every day. And uh, I'll tell you what, you want to be a valued member of a prepper group, be the guy that can take MREs and make them taste good. Chef Keith, I don't know if he can go that far, but he can do a lot to help make you a better cook. He has some really cool stuff as well. Check him out at HarvestEating.com. Remember, he also has his new show on Rural Free Delivery TV. If you have Dish or uh, Direct, I believe you definitely get that channel. You can look it up. You go to his site, and you can find out when his show airs. But uh, he's got his own TV show now. Next up today um, is... Uh, free, the, I'm sorry, guys. I uh, got distracted for a second. The Free State Project. Do you know that you can vote with your feet? Yes, you can. You can vote with your feet. In fact, that's the foundation of a republic. If you're living in a state and eventually your state just kind of just does some really stupid things over and over and over again and you try to make change and you can't, the, the foundation of a republic is that you can go to another state where they do things a little less stupidly and you can work to make that state even more free. That's what the Free State Project's all about. Uh, looking for 10,000 people to move to New Hampshire and work on uh, changing that state into the freest state in the Union. They're off to a good start. Uh, they're doing great things up there. They chose New Hampshire for a variety of reasons, one being that the uh, State House of New Hampshire is one of the largest body count-wise uh, legislatures in the world. And that means that there's very few people represented by a single representative, which means you can have a big input pact. And there's a lot of other reasons they picked New Hampshire. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you think it's a great idea. Maybe you even like New Hampshire, but it's just not in the cards to go there. That doesn't mean you can't help them by supporting them financially, going to their events, speaking at their events, uh, mentioning them in your blog, and realizing that a fight for liberty in one place is a fight for liberty ever, every place, supporting the work they do. Uh, that's what I'm doing because they don't pay for this spot on the Survival Podcast. Unlike all the other sponsors, they get their spot for free. It's my contribution to the Free State Project. So whether you can contribute by going there or contribute by helping out, uh, I think they're a worthy cause. That's why I put them in front of you about once a week. 
Next up today, check out tspcopper.com for some really cool copper medallions. I'll leave it at that today. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts to well over 30 supporting vendors now. Chef Keith Snow is about to come on with his own discount program. I've got the Terroir Seeds things worked out. I'll get that update done today. Those are just two examples, but there's a lot of great discounts there. The membership more than pays for itself. Comes out to 18.3 cents per episode if you do the math. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like uh, paramedics, email me before you join with subject discount in the or service discount in the subject line, and I will send you a special discount to thank you for your service. The email to reach me for that or any other needs, guys, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. I meet people all the time that go, Well, I was going to email you, but I know you get lots of email, and I didn't know your real email. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com is my real email. Uh, I read every email that comes in except the ones that get lost in the spam folder, and I try to minimize that. Uh, following formats like uh, service discount or following formats like question for Jack, things like that in the subject line will help prevent you from getting eaten by the spam box monster. All right, with that, we've got the housekeeping wrapped up. Let's go ahead and get into today's show. Uh, as I said, our guest today is Ned Farrell, uh, a beekeeper for 24 years and uh, the founder of a website called happyary.com. Hey, Ned, with that, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Hey, um, you're kind of in this little mini-series we're doing on beekeeping because I know a lot about a lot of things, but one thing I've actually never done is keep bees. I'm learning as we bring more folks like you on, but you want to maybe tell people just a little bit about your background and how you got into beekeeping as we get started here today? Yeah, sure. When I um, when I was uh, graduated from college, this was in the late 80s uh, now, uh, I wanted to go overseas, basically. I just wanted to travel a little bit um, around uh, around the world and at least see another country or two. And um, and I've always liked to help people as well. So that the Peace Corps uh, seemed like a good idea to me at the time. So I, I so I applied to the Peace Corps, and they said, well, what kind of uh, experience do, ha- do you have? You know, what, what's your degree in? And I I said, well, my degree is in philosophy. And they said, yeah, well, that's great, but you know, can you do anything? Um, and I really didn't, you know, I didn't have any medical background. I wasn't I wasn't brought up on a farm or anything like that, but I didn't have any real practical experience that the Peace Corps could use. And they said, would you be willing to become a beekeeping extensionist? And I, I said, beekeeping? Now, this was before I had any experience at all. And, and I was a little bit uh, taken aback. I'm like, beekeeping? What, what do you need, you know, beekeepers for? What's so important about that? You know, that's how, that, that's how little I knew at the time. And they explained that, you know, in a third world country, and actually even in the United States, we just don't see it as much, but um, especially in a third world country, uh, the bees are a natural resource. They're just there, and there's an abundance of them, and not only for, are they important because of the food, because of, of, of the honey and the pollen, but also um, the beeswax that uh, people could take out and use themselves, but also, you know, every family or any family who wants to can have as many hives as they want, whether it be one or ten or twenty, and actually get a supplemental income out of this. So in a third for so for a Peace Corps program, it's actually one of the more popular programs. So um well you know once I learned that, I mean that that was really intriguing. So that's really the only reason I got into it is because I wanted to be in the Peace Corps and go overseas. It ended up being just the, the not only just the most wonderful experience, but 
you know, I learned all about this brand new world that I knew, knew nothing about. Well, that's awesome because I knew you'd worked down in South America, uh, but I didn't know it was with Peace Corps. So uh, let me at this time say thanks for your service there because I think a lot of people don't realize what a great service that uh, the Peace Corps is to the world and on behalf of our, our country when our folks go do it. So thanks for that. Um, I want to kind of... I want to kind of get into something that is on a lot of people's minds today, which is we look at the bees and we kind of go, the bees are in trouble. And if the bees are in trouble, well, we're in trouble. They do an awful lot for us. But could you just, in your experience, sum up, why do you think there's less honeybees today than than there used to be? Or like when I first started uh, keeping bees, again, at this time in the late 80s, I actually worked for a little bit in the United States. Uh, before I went went down there, so just about a year, so I had a little bit of, of experience. And at that time, I was working with um, fantastic uh, beekeeper, you know, up here in Connecticut. And um, but I mean, the, the bees were all honeybees were all over the place. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you remember. I remember, you know, walking around there in bare feet as a kid, getting stung by a bee. You see them all over the clovers and and in uh, apple trees. And we used to see bees all the time. And and yeah, time, I grew up in I, Pennsylvania, and most oh, lawns yeah. had a significant amount of white clover in them. And if it hadn't been mowed recently and the clover blossoms were on, walking barefoot was a bad idea because you were going to step on one and he was going to sting it. And they were exactly. everywhere. You could see them swarming, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah, you'd see them swarming, and they were a common part of summertime. So you used to see them all the time. They were just kind of a part of life. And you don't, we don't see that as much anymore, at least not around here we don't. Um, so at the time, actually, this my um, my buddy's primary income in the summer was actually taking bees out of people's homes. Um, you know, taking them like they'd be in the wall of your house, or they'd be in the attic, or they'd be in a pillar. You know, and I still do some of that. But I mean, I got one call for one of those this year. That was it. He used to do like two of those jobs, maybe three a week, because there was so many, so many honeybees. Now, you know, the first thing that uh, that happened in the '90s was that there was um, a, a sudden major influx of the two types of mites, the, the, the varroa mites and the tracheal mites. And that wiped out lots of hives, um, all over the country. And, um, so that, that was, that was pretty bad to start with. And those are each still issues, but between the bees themselves, um, adapting and also between, you know, the beekeepers and some scientists, you know, kind of getting a handle on kind of what's going on, started nipping that in the bud. But then most recently, in 2006, um, colony collapse disorder was diagnosed. And this is, this is a very strange um, phenomenon because it, with colony collapse disorder, the bees are literally just leaving the hives, leaving the hives with honey in the hives, with brood in the hives, whatever the case might be. So it's not like, oh, if there's a bacteria that comes in, wipes out the bees, and we find all these dead bees around What's so scary and confusing about it is the fact that this phenomena is something where uh, it, the bees are leaving seemingly a healthy hive and they're just taking off. So uh, because of that, um, we're, we've been losing 30% of our hives every year. Like as they overwinter um, for the last six years, besides last year, um, we've been losing 30% of our hives, and then it's come springtime, we have to build up um, the, those populations again, and then the next year we would lose another 30%. Now, last year we only, I'll say only with, with quotes, uh, lost 21.9% of 
of our overwintering colonies, which is still bad, but it's a major improvement over over the average from the previous six years. So, um, so you know, because of you know, all of these things that are happening, colony collapse disorder doesn't really have, um, haven't really put our finger on exactly what it is even. So, uh, so it's, so it's interesting and it's something that we're all working on. Do you think that there's anything to the beliefs that people have that, uh, GMO crops, which I have some limited to what they could actually do because most of them aren't flowering crops to begin with, but there, I think there might be something there. And then the other component of it, though, is what they're making crops GMO enabled to be able to do, like the excessive spraying of herbicides and things like that, that this has some level of impact on, on the bee population. Well, yeah, I, in my mind, there's no doubt that uh, the GMOs and really what they're putting, um, you know, how they're engineering them and what they're putting on the seed um, itself. Uh, I had picked up... Uh, just this past spring, um, a couple farmers came up to me and they're like, can you put some, you know, hives, you know, on our property? You could just keep them there. You know, we don't want any honey or anything. Just just keep them there because this is the thing. Nowadays, you know, people, all sorts of people are asking me to put these, you know, on their land. Um, but um, I checked out the property. Everything looked good. And he, uh, he mostly did corn. did a lot of different things. But he mostly grew close corn. And I said, can I see your bag of seed. Can, can you bring out a bag of seed? And he brought out the bag, and I wrote down the list of all the things that were on the seed, and <laughs> at least, I mean, there's everything. There's pesticides, there's herbicides, and this is just on the seed. This isn't what he sprays a month after he plants. This is like a coating, a coated seed, right? Exactly. They, okay. Yeah, right. They just spray coating on the seed, and it has herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, all sorts of things, and um, it, it's some pretty scary stuff, because uh, about three, there are three pesticides on it, and two herbicides, and at least one fungicide, and then other things that were also kind of mixed in there. Um, and the one really scary thing that the, some of these companies are coming out with, they're called neonicotinoids, and like clothianidin is is a, a major one that's been in the, been in the news. If you follow beekeeping, it's been in the news. It hasn't really been in in uh, mainstream news very much. But um, the neonicotinoids, are, they're actually engineered um, to, to have the pesticide stay in the nectar and the pollen of the plant, which is exactly what pollinating insects eat, <laughs> is nectar and pollen. So if you want to eliminate bees from the world, then this is exactly the way to do it. And there's, it doesn't come and go. It's in the plant. Um, so I, this, these are things that could just wipe out any colonies of bees that come into contact with them at all. Um, so, you know, this, this is some, some pretty scary stuff. Now, obviously, uh, I could not put my bees out on a farm like that. Sure, sure. Because it's my investment. I mean, I care about the bees, and I truly love the bees. Uh, honeybees are just awesome, but it's also, you know, my business. It's my investment. So, you know, I, and then, you know, then they have to still spray. And I understand spraying and, and you, know, I, you know, the farmers have to grow their, their crops, too, and they love what they do. And, and you know, I, I understand what they're doing, but I can't be a part of it because I'm a beekeeper and I'm putting my bees at risk. I would have to either close off my hives or move my hives while they're spraying. And, 
you know, I can't do that. That's, that's like that's like closing up an office and moving it out for a month and then moving it back again. You know, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that you've just explained parts of the GMO threat with bees uh, in a way that we really haven't heard of before. So I appreciate that. Um, but, I mean, there's a lot of people that look at, well, Jack and Ned, what was so great about running through the clover field and getting stung by a bee? And I think there's a lot of people that don't really understand how much bees do for us. So can you explain, like, why we need them and kind of what we can do as individuals to help them kind of come back stronger than the, than they are now anyway? Yeah, right. I mean, well, this is the thing we really uh, – we don't see. It just happens all around us. And, and you know, like, you know, people that grow up on farms understand that more people in, you know, third-world countries, you know, are a little bit more connected, you know, with nature uh, than we are around here, so they can see it a little bit more. But the, the honeybees are constantly, you know, at work and all pollinating insects, you, you know, like, uh, like uh, you know, butterflies and other types of, of bees and even bats for that matter. Uh, but they're constantly at work working on the flowers, not only crops. I mean, there's, so like we already mentioned clover, and then there's apple, but all of the, like right now I'm looking out the window and seeing beautiful goldenrod, um, you know, and aster, and uh, all, all of the plants, the trees, any trees um, that are out there, any and all trees that are out there, and even the weeds that we have around, there's flowers on all of those, and, and the pollinating insects keep all of those going. Um, and the honeybees specifically work on most of our crops. So, you know, we really would not have the fruits and vegetables that we have without the honeybees. Like, uh, you can, there are some um, plants that are self-pollinating, and there are some plants that can still produce some pretty fairly good fruit, um, you know, like pumpkins and, you know, some of the melons can actually produce a fairly good fruit, but they would, the fruits themselves would be much smaller and sometimes misshapen. Um, just because of the fact that they're not being pollinated enough. Um, so, so that's what I was saying. Like these people that asked me to put a couple hives on their farm, uh, you know, there are other bees around, native bees that will pollinate. Um, but you know, you put a couple of uh, honeybee hives out there that have anywhere from 20 to 30 to 50,000 bees. I mean, that's a lot of workers out there. You know, doing their job, and so so it's really fascinating stuff. And then, of course, the the you know, local honey is just so good for you, and then also the wax and the pollen and the propolis. The, there's a lot of hive products that we get out of these hives. Um, so it's a really you know, wonderful endeavor altogether. The, the honeybees are one of the things that really help nature continue thriving year after year after year. And to me, they're just such an integral component. Like, we've learned in our arrogance over the past hundred years with modern agriculture that things that don't look important are, are really important. And if we jack around with them, we get a lot of really bad unintended consequences. Right. When we look at bees in the ecosystem, you, you have to be kind of a mental midget to not see that they make a tremendous contribution. So if the disruption of a single strain of bacteria in the soil through these chemical fertilizers is going to cause a problem 20 years later that we really realize how bad it is, and it was that one little bacteria we don't even see, 
to, to look at something that you can visually examine and watch the performance in something so important that somebody with a, a, a peach orchard or an apricot orchard or whatever will pay a beekeeper to put, put them there, and then to think that you can jack around with that and not have adverse consequences just seems completely moronic. I don't, I don't even understand how anybody doesn't really get it, at least if they're paying any attention at all to agriculture. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's part of it, and that's part of what um, what I do. The name of my company is Be Happy, and we're it, 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 this information you have to look for it. And you know, in this country, you know, we're very we're very busy people. We have a lot of uh, other things to keep us occupied. So this isn't like mainstream news. I don't know. Um, you know, beekeeping is. is so amazingly fascinating that um, I, I'm, I'm amazed that more people actually don't do it. But once you start talking about it, and once you get your face into a hive, <laughs> there, there's no going back. I mean, it's it's so interesting. You just can't believe what they're doing in there. And so this this isn't mainstream stuff. And even as a beekeeper, I have to look for this information. You know, I, but I now I know where to look. So of course I just you know I have it on my favorites, and I'm just you know of getting the new news all the time, but it's not mainstream stuff, so people just aren't aware of it because it's not what they're seeing in the newspapers or on the news. So I, I like to talk about this, and I like to do, uh, you know, talks for companies and for schools and for libraries and that sort of thing to try to get the word out, and that's why one of my, my big passions is also teaching people how to keep these. Just like I did in the Peace Corps, it's kind of like, it's like the Peace Corps here, um, that, that's what I do. And, you know, just this past year, I, I helped a number of people get some hives together for themselves, and now they have hives on their property. Um, so it's, uh, you know, so it's, it's really a good thing. But if you're not, um, if you're not, it's almost like if you're not looking for it, the information is not going to come to you, unfortunately. And I think that's part of the beekeeper's problem, too, because I think as, as the ones that work with the bees and as the ones that are passionate about this, it's kind of our job to get the word out there and let people know what's going on. Stop talking to the bees and start talking to people about bees, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Get your face out of the hive for a second. I think that's true in any hobby, though, that people end up like really into a hobby or really into a profession, either or. And then you start looking and seeking out people that are also there, and you end up kind of the preaching to the choir thing. Because let's face it, right. it's, it's great to talk to people that we have common interests with, but a little bit of evangelism goes a long way to, to grow the tent, so to speak. Yeah, exa exactly, exactly. I mean, I talk to beekeepers all the time, but yeah, that's, it's good for your own personal knowledge and, and, and to learn something about your own bees, but it doesn't do anything yet for the public awareness of it. So I'm going to ask you a question I'm sure you get all the time from people that you're talking to, especially people that don't know a lot about bees. What does it take for a person to get started keeping bees? Well, you need uh, you need a hive, and you need some equipment, and you need the bees themselves. So you really don't need um, much land at all. Actually, there's, um, boy, I, I could think. There's at least three of the people I help set up hives actually are in cities here <laughs> in Connecticut with very small pieces of, of uh, plots of land. Um, and well, beekeeping is even legal in New York City now. They're just putting them on rooftops and uh, on, on out on the veranda and stuff. So that's that's really interesting. So space is not really uh, an issue. Uh, you just have to know where to put them, of course. But you can talk to a beekeeper, you know, about where the best spot to put them in your property is, which way to face you know, the entrance and that sort of thing. So you need a hive, 
sent a box to put them in. Uh, I use two different types of hives, the Langstroth hives, which are the box hives that people are used to seeing, and I also use the uh, top bar hives, which were unheard of. You know, when I went down to South America, that's what we used in South America. Now they're becoming popular in the United States, which is a lot of fun. And they're two totally different ways of beekeeping. Uh, the, the bees act differently in each type of hive. It's fascinating stuff. Um, so you need one of, one of those types of hives. And uh, you need the bees, of course, which you can get from any number of, of places, any number of sources. And then, um, you know, I always start with, as far as equipment goes, the smoker. The smoker is the most important part of uh, part of the puzzle when you're actually going into a hive, because you definitely want to smoke the bees before you open up and get into their house. Um, so the smoker, you, you know, you need a hive tool, you need a veil, uh, some gloves are good, then you need some extracting equipment uh, for later on in the year. Uh, and the nice thing about this is that the beekeeping is, is definitely an investment up front. But once you have the hive, and if you're taking care of the hive, you, you don't, if you don't want any more hives, you know, if you have like two hives, then that's just what you need. There's not much of an investment from here on in. You know, once you have the equipment, you're good. You know, then you just have to, you know, there's certain things that you do have to get, you know, every year, like maybe some some feed and, and time, a little bit of time uh, to work the bees as well. So you're probably looking at anywhere from, you know, with a top bar hive to get everything to get into business totally with one hive, maybe about, you know, 400 bucks, maybe five to six with a Langstroth hive, depending on how aggressive you want to go with it. Uh, and then that's also including, like, the veil and the gloves and all that, of which you only get one you know, for yourself and for everybody else around. So, again, that's just a one-time investment. So um, it's, you're kind of unique in being one of these people that, that has experience with it and, and uses both hives. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think from what I've read from your writing that you feel that a more appropriate technology is the top bar. But when it comes to somebody getting started, this is an interesting question for you. Is it easier for the beekeeper uh, the new beekeeper to use a conventional hive, or is it easier for them to use a top bar? Well, when you're just getting started, you know, if you're starting with no knowledge, then I would honestly say starting with with either one will be just as kind of easy in a sense. Because the thing is, with, with the top bar hive, you just set it up in a certain way, and then you know, and then they're ready to go. And, and with a top bar hive, the bees are going to build more like they do in nature. Like down in South America, we got our bees, of course. We found a hive, and there's techniques to go out and find hives. But we found a hive, and it was hanging from a vine. It was inside of a tree. It was in a log, uh, whatever the case might be. And they, the bees build in nature in a very certain exact way, no matter where the hive is. It always looks the same. It always looks the same, exactly. Uh, I just got a picture. It made me sad. It was a guy that ended up with a bunch of bees underneath a tarp on his um, grill. And oh, yeah. He, you see that he taped a, a bug fogger to a, a broom and shoved it under there? And it's just a guy that's scared. He didn't know any different. But at the end, they show where he pulls the tarp off, and under the shelf of the grill was where the bees had built their hive. And it looked exactly like cones out of a top bar hive. And it may be sad, but, you know, I mean, I can understand the guy being scared and not really knowing what to deal uh, to do with it. But, it, but it looked, like, to your point, it looked exactly like a comb out of a top bar hive. 
and that's the whole thing with the top bar highs because the, what's really nice about it is the the you can put together the box itself out of anything. I mean, in, I, mean I, I used to use just scrap wood. In South America, I've seen them made out of metal. The only dimension that has to be exact is those top bars, and the, all, everything else can be touched. And it's really uh, well, let me just back up just a little bit for the people who don't know why we're talking about certain types of hives, and now we're talking about top bars. And uh, the reason why you have a top bar in a top bar hive, and the reason why you have frames in a Langstroth hive, is because the whole crux of beekeeping is being able to take out each of the combs that the bees are building and inspect them and find out what's going on in the hive. And the reason that you want to do that is you want to make sure that the hive is as healthy as possible and so that they'll go out and do the most pollination so you can get the most honey out of the hive. So these hives that we're talking about are extremely important and so ingenious that uh, it makes beekeeping possible because before uh, we call these movable frame hives. So before movable frame hives, or you can call them movable comb hives, uh, people just used to go in and open up the hive, like a skep, you know, the old picture of the skeps, the rope uh, type of hive that you see, I don't know, in drawings and old pictures and stuff. You just used to open that up and just scoop out the honey and then close it back up again, and then you just leave the bees there. Or sometimes, lots of times, they would go and you burn the hive and take out the honey and kill all the bees. So beekeeping, proper management techniques mean taking out each of the comb, inspecting the comb, find out what's going on in the hive and doing certain things in certain seasons to help the bees be as healthy as possible and to make as much honey. Okay, so that, that's why we're talking about these top bars and, and the frames and the Langstroth. So on a top bar hive, we have the top bars of an exact dimension, and the bees build off of those, just like you were saying, just like they would if under a tarp or hanging from a vine or in a tree or in a big cavity somewhere. Um, and it, it does look exactly the same. And the top bar hive is built kind of like a, a V or a U shape. And the bees do not connect the comb to the sides of that shape. So you could take out the comb and literally it'll be a U, <laughs> which is fantastic. Cause it's just, it's so fascinating, you know? So, and then the bees really will build more like they do just in nature. So they're, in a sense, they're, you're just leaving them to, to do their own thing. But you're kind of telling them where to build the comb. Now, and that's really, when it comes to African bees, it's very helpful. When it comes to the Langstroth hives, um, you're just learning how to do it a different way. When I first went down to Paraguay, I didn't get the whole top bar hive thing because I had a little experience with, with the Langstroth hive. Now, the Langstroth hive uses the frames, and you stack boxes on top. So in a sense, it's a very unnatural way for the bees to build, but it's so ingenious because you can add to the hive, you can take off the hive. You, when you extract the honey, you can just uncap it, spin out the honey, and actually put the comb back in the hive, which saves the bees a huge amount of time and energy and therefore saves a huge amount of honey. <laughs> so all they have to do is, is, is put the comb or, or and correct honey. me if I'm wrong, but it just seems to me that the removal of the, the, the frame takes less care. It can be just removed 
and you have to use a little bit more care when you're removing a top bar. Oh yeah, yeah, your 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 movements are totally different because yeah, when when you have a frame, it's literally a wooden frame with a piece of foundation in the middle and then the bees build off of that. So it's all contained. So you can actually like pass it over to the next person and you could look at it and you could turn it around and spin it and hold it upside down and it's all going to be self-contained with a top bar hive. You're exactly right. There the hive the comb is only connected to the top. So you have to be a little bit you know, you, well, let's just say a little bit more ginger with how you're handling it. So you have to be a little bit more careful and a little bit more deliberate in your actions, and there's a certain way of turning the comb so you could look at it on each side. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Okay, that makes sense. And, but you were, you were, I didn't want to really disrupt you, uh, cause you were explaining the ingenious design of the hive, but that was one of the things I've always looked at and thought about. Kind of like, okay, I don't have a lot of experience beekeeping because I have none. And thinking about it from a standpoint of somebody that's a new beekeeper, one of the things on your mind is always, well, getting stung is going to happen, but I want to minimize right. it. And, and yep. the more I can just get it done, the less exposure I have to ticking the bees off. So right. is there anything to that with Lenstrom versus uh, Top Bar? Yeah, I think the composure of the bees is completely different in the, in the two hives. Now, you know, we're dealing with honeybees um, that really don't care about people at all. They don't. They don't care about us, what we're doing or anything. They're busy. They want to make their honey. They want to build their home. That's what they're doing. Um, so even when you're inside a hive, as long as you smoke them a little bit, they're going to pretty much ignore you. So, but like you said, I mean, most actually, most of the times, I when I do get stung, it's on my fingers because I don't wear the gloves, and you know, I'm going into five hives at a time, and you you get a little sloppy, and then I squish one, and I get stung in the finger. <laughs> That's usually mostly I get stung because I I squish one by accident. But um, when you're uh, like in a Langstroth hive, for example, or actually, uh, let me start with the top bar. In a top bar hive, um, you're literally only taking out one bar at a time. And so, therefore, you're only opening up about two to four inches of the hive at a time, and you're only disturbing those bees that are on that piece of comb. And then when you're done inspecting that comb, you put that comb back and you move on to the next one. And, like I said, it's also kind of a more natural way. I think the bees like top bar hives better so they are more calm you know they just kind of really just don't even notice what's going on really don't care what's going on uh, which is a great thing for a beginning beekeeper because they can really see what the bees are, are doing and you can actually spend more time in a top bar hive um, without the bees getting get too excited now in a Langstroth hive <laughs> it's a little bit different because you're you're stacking the boxes I mean you could stack, I mean I've seen the boxes five six seven high um, but even let's, let's just keep it simple and say you have two, two boxes that are stacked up on top. The first thing you have to do is you have to take the cover off and then you have to take the inner cover off. So right there, you just opened up the whole hive <laughs> all at once. And this is very interesting when it comes to African bees because you really have to know what you're doing with a Langstroth hive and African bees. You need some a little extra equipment, but you do first. So that's the first, first of all, you just opened up the whole hive. So now all the sunlight is streaming into this hive, and you then you go ahead and you expect all of the, inspect all of those frames, but then you have to go into the bottom box, 
and then not only have you opened up the whole hive, but now you have to split the hive in half in a sense. You know, kind of think of like the bees think. All of a sudden, now you have to take that box off and then look in the bottom box. Now, so now you just, you know, totally just disrupt them all over again. Now, instead of removing a comb, you've actually separated the colony from each other. Yeah, exactly, which which actually it sounds worse than it is, but in it, that's what you're doing because you're not in there for that long, really, as long as everything is going well. Sure, but you can see where I, if I'm a, a worker bee, that the alert might be sounded a little bit higher when that happens than one comb goes out and... You know, that yeah, it yeah. just seems a little different. It's like, you know, I'm sure bees don't have very complex brains, but there's a little bit of psychology going on there. Yeah, there is. There is. And again, now you're opening up that whole bottom box, and now the sun's streaming in, and now, you know, they're exposed to the elements. And so there's like, what is going on here, you know? So, so yeah, it, 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 there's definitely a different thing going on. And um, I definitely work more deliberately in a Langstroth hive in general. For that, especially when, you know, now then you have to start putting honey supers on, which are the boxes that you put on top that are just for the honey. So now you have to check out those boxes as well. And and the reason you're going into the hive, is, you know, is to check to make sure, you know, everything's going well. The queen is laying eggs. There's no diseases that you can that you can tell, you know, give them more space, give them less space, depending on the season, all that sort of thing. But there's a lot, you know, a Langstroth hive, I would say, would take, uh, well, it would take more work in general. But, you know, it also it depends on why you have the bees, too, because you can just have a hive or two literally just because it looks pretty. I know people that just have hives on their property because they just like to have them there. You can just use them for pollination. You can use them just to have honey just for the family, or you can actually use it as a supplemental income for yourself and actually sell honey and beeswax and all that sort of thing. So you, you if, if you're going to be just, uh, using the hives for pollination and just for some honey for yourself, a top bar hive or two is plenty. Um, but if you want to get more into it and, and you want to uh, start selling some honey, you do get more honey out of a Langstroth hive, no doubt. Um, you, you get more wax out of a top bar hive, but you, also, you get more honey out of a Langstroth hive. Um, so it, it depends on the purpose uh, why you're keeping these two. Gotcha, gotcha. And I mean, yeah, a pure production standpoint. But I, I would say that today with the more informed consumer, it's probably possible that if you effectively marketed your honey as being top bar natural honey, you may be able to sell at enough of a premium um, that you might actually still make the same type of production in dollars from a standpoint of a business. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? And I, you know, I do like a couple of farmers markets around here. So, you know, people are very much into local. People and people are very much into local honey um, because of the benefits that it has, because it has the pollen and the enzymes of everything that's local around. I mean, when when people start talking about it, um, they really have a a good feeling for the fact that, okay, this stuff is local. Also, you know, my honey is, is raw and unpasteurized. Most beekeepers, small scale beekeepers, honey is raw, unpasteurized honey, meaning we, we just took it out of the hive and put it in a jar. We haven't heated it. Uh, we haven't pasteurized. We haven't taken out, we haven't taken out all of the enzymes and, and heated it to the point where all the pollen is gone or strained it to the point where everything that's good is taken out of the honey. Now you just have expensive sugar water. But most small scale beekeepers, We'll just literally just spin the honey, or if it's in a top bar hive, squish the comb, and there's your honey right from the hive. And that's 
and, and the flavor of honey, you know, people don't realize, you know, like sugar is sweet, you know, okay, and that's sugar. I mean, different sugar doesn't taste differently. It's granulated sugar. It tastes sweet. Honey, you know, if you haven't tasted honey in a while, taste some honey because there's a lot of flavors going on in there, and it's, it's so wonderful, and, and honey can never be the same twice. Like, granulated sugar is the same all the time. Honey, right. it can't be the same twice because the hives are different. It, 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 the flowers out there depend on the weather. Uh, you know, where, you know, it, it, was, it was early, it was hot early this past year. Like, like a month early, flowers started coming out. So, so this year's honey, it was just different all year round uh, or all year long. Um, so, I mean, just that alone is just fantastic. And, and, you know, the bees are out there doing their, doing their thing, collecting whatever flowers they can, bringing that honey back. So, like earlier this summer, I had dark honey. My honey right now is very light. You know, and then you never know if you're going to get it. It's great. Yeah, there's definitely things like that. You, if you have honey from a beekeeper that it has his bees sitting in a giant clover field. It's yeah. a very light, fruity, airy honey. If you have honey from a West Texas or Arizona beekeeper who, where the bees get a huge amount of their, their nectar and pollen from mesquite, it's an entirely different, amazing type of honey. And I, I think it's kind of like, it's kind of like wines with terroir, which is like a sense of place that, that if you and I even kept bees in the same area that were from the same initial strain, that were kept in the same type of hive, and I was just two blocks away from you, there'll be similarities, but my honey's going to be different than yours. Because yeah. my bees might be in my backyard all over my blue uh, my blue sage flowers, and yours might be all over a bunch of sunflower, and they're gonna it's going to be different. They'll, they'll probably cross each other's paths even some, but... Even that little movement, just like a, 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 a venter that would have a winery that the, the, the grapes growing on one, you know, facing slope are going to be slightly different than another in the wine they produce. And, and honey has that intricacy that's like, you know, like go out and get five different local honeys and taste them and there'll be differences in all of them, like you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's like the fun part, part of the fun about it is just getting the honey. Sometimes they even forget that, boy, in a couple months I'm going to have honey. <laughs> because it's so interesting what you're doing, but then you get the honey. It's like, oh my god, this, this, this is this is wonderful, you know. And it's always different. It's yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff. And that's all over the world. That's what it's like, you know. It's all different. You know, you brought up another thing too about the sugar. And a, one way I can help people that have never tasted natural raw honey, and all they've ever had for honey is the stuff you buy in a store that's crystal clear and it all looks the same. When yeah. you were talking about sugar. If you think about the way that plain white crystallized sugar tastes versus like natural in the raw sugar, it's not the same thing, but it's kind of like that. The comparison between having the molasses component and and and, and some of the, the original raw components of the sugar cane still there has it's slightly less sweet, it has all these different complexities to it, and then the white is just sweet. And to me, like raw honey versus filtered honey and pasteurized honey is just the same kind of thing. There's all these pieces and components to it, not just from a health standpoint, but from a flavor profile that's just been sanitized out when they take you know honey from 500 different places and put it in one big vat and squeeze it out into 24-ounce bottles. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, the, um, yeah, and then you can get into the whole thing, too, where they're, you know, we ship honey in now from other countries, 
and uh, some of the stuff they're finding that has come from, you know, well, China and India, some of these other places, isn't even honey, or it's been like literally sugar water. Um, has nothing to do with honey, or it's honey mixed with sugar water, or whatever the case might be. So, you know, you can get into that whole aspect of it and say, if if it's coming from another country and it's not even honey, then we don't even know what we're eating. So that's just yeah. another reason to buy American and to buy local. Uh, you know, so it's uh, you know, and and it's it's really too bad, you know, that that's the case. But really, I mean, there's plenty of beekeepers around. You should be able to find. You know, local honey and beekeepers love talking about it too. If you want to, if you have, if anybody has any interest in, in, in beekeeping, there's no shortage of people to talk to about it as long as you uh, find a beekeeper and then they'll, you know, they'll help you out too. Beekeepers love helping other people and giving them advice. Yeah, I, I found them to be just about as evangelical with what they're doing when you start asking about it as a ham radio guy. I mean, they, yeah, right. they, yeah, they want to spread the word, man. I think the hams maybe are a little bit over the top, but uh, now I'm going to get beat up by the ham radio guys. But, uh, you mentioned something there that I want to talk about for a minute, if we could, because I'm sure everybody's ears perked up, working with Africanized bees, and I guess you did that in South America. Now, my understanding is if we go over to Africa with a true African honeybee, they don't behave the way these hybrid Africanized versions do. Is that the case, or is it just a matter of working with them differently? Because I know it's something that a lot of people, especially in the southern United States, as these dadgone things are migrating north, are concerned about. Um, what's what's the deal with these African bees and using them for honey or, or what have you? Well, okay, what well, African bees, they're still honeybees. Um, so if you know what you're doing, there's, you could still get into the hives um, and work them, you know, fairly safely. Now, my, uh, my trainer in Paraguay, the original guy that I trained with in Paraguay, uh, he lives in Africa now that he's always moving back and forth and everything. But uh, he doesn't think that, uh, as far as I know, I mean, he never said that there was any big difference between the bees in South America and the bees in Africa. But they're definitely different than the bees in North, than the European bees we have up here in, in North America. So um, I've never heard that description because he would always tell us you know, horror stories and uh, about <laughs> a couple of things that, that had happened in Africa, too. But the point is, and now even with European bees, you have to be careful because they're they're bees. They, it's not like they get to know you um, or anything like that. I mean, they're insects, in a sense, wild insects that are just doing their own thing. Now, you know, African bees are definitely more excited about seeing you uh, when you come to visit. There's no doubt about it. Um, which is one reason why the appropriate technology hives, the, the, the top bar hives, are really help quite a bit. Not only are they so much cheaper to make, but the fact that, like I said before, you're, you're only disturbing a very small amount of the colony at a time. Uh, that really helps. Um, there, it, it is definitely a different, an augmented way of keeping bees, let's put it that way, because of you know, the seasons are different. They, they will swarm more. There's no they they will swarm at the drop of a hat. They'll even abscond if they get too uh, bothered. And absconding is something that they that they will just just do. They'll just leave the hive if they're too close to a house or if they're too close to some animals or if they just get bugged too much. They'll just leave because down there they don't have to overwinter. You know, 
And that's one of the things about why African bees are so much more aggressive because they, it's so fertile down there that there are all sorts of animals and other insects, the, the, the colonies of ants that come through, and they're under attack pretty much all the time just because it's so fertile. There's so many other bugs and animals and, and other things going on. So in a sense, I can understand why they're so excitable. But with a top bar hive, you can work them a lot easier, much, much easier. And you also have to know how to work them. Uh, you just can't take, I, in my opinion, I mean, when I first moved down to South America, I, with, with what experience I did have, I really had to learn how to handle the African bees, like how much to smoke a hive and how much not to smoke a hive. When to close the hive <laughs> becomes very important with African bees. There are certain sounds that you'll, you'll become accustomed to as they get more excited or less excited. Um, so, you know, there's things that you have to get some experience with. But still with the top bar hives, really never had uh, too much of a problem with any of them. Um, I probably got stung, you know, a few more times. You have to get used to, for example, how when they hit your veil or when you have your face in a beehive. And even in a European uh, beehive, like, you know, European bees we have around here, you know, if they get ticked off, they'll start hitting your veil because they'll start, like, going after your face. But they're just – so you have to get used to that sometimes. You really don't see that too much around here. But, you know, in South America, you have to get used to that because as they get more excited, they start pelting your veil a lot. But you have to – And they're telling you something doing. at that point too, right? They're saying, hey, so, you're yes, they're, <laughs> Exactly. They're saying, dude, you know, what are you doing in my hive? What are you doing in my hive? You know, they're, and they're starting to get a little tired of you being there. Um, and also, you know, just, 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 they can just notice that you are there. Um, and once they start noticing, then more are going to start noticing as well. Um, you know, usually though, I mean, again, the way we got the bees was actually by going into a log or, or, or uh, cutting some vines or going into a tree, cutting out that comb and tying that each of those pieces of comb to a separate top bar. Um, and we would do that, you know, without any gloves or anything because you have to use string or rubber bands or whatever the case might be. And that was actually very easy uh, to do. You know, once you know what you're doing, the, the bees aren't getting very excited. Um, now you switch over to a Langstroth hive <laughs> and you start working with these African bees. You know, you got to get tough. You know, you, yeah. you got to get ready for that. Um, but, you know, you, you do certain things, you know, you you take um, wet towels out, so you're, you're keeping the hive cool and you're covering up most of it, uh, you know, cover up, you know, what you do open. Uh, make sure you have two or three people, like, around here I can go in hives alone, anybody. You can just go into a hive by yourself if you know what you're doing and do your business and get out of there. You really don't want to do that. Um, with an African hive, especially if it's a language. And just to be clear, we're talking about this for informational purposes. We're not recommending anybody out there go out and colonize a, a group of Africanized bees in the United States. We're saying in yeah. South America where these things are what they are, they manage to pull it off. And I think it makes a huge case for top bar beekeeping in the U.S. with a more gentle strain of bee because if it if it keeps the, the really aggressive strain more calm, then it should create a cre- keep a less aggressive strain, more calm. And I do have one kind of question for you here, just as a theoretical thing. 
One of the things that we've seen a lot of people do in the U.S. to create more and more calm strains of bees here is if they get a really aggressive strain, they'll kill off the queen, make a new queen, bring in a, a, a calmer colony. And it seems like we've worked our way into even more calm bees. Is there any potential for that work to be done by man with the Africanized versions? Well, the, the issue with the Africanized bees and why, why they ended up just taking over uh, down there is because they're so strong. They're not only like aggressive when you get near them, when you get near their hive. See, and again, not out in the, if they're, if it's just like any other honeybee, if they're out on flowers, you know, you know, you could, you could grab them, you could touch them, you could hold them, you can do all of this stuff. They're not going to sting you. They're just out doing their thing. It's only when you're right around the colony. Absolutely. Uh, I was in Honduras, again, when I was in Honduras, they were all over the place, and we were, you know, kind of roughing it, intense and all, and there were bees everywhere. Yeah. And they never, and you, you know, at first nobody even knew that that's what they were. And then the guy's like, they're all that down here. And, but they yeah, were right. aggressive bees. And when you got stung by one, it was no different than being stung by, because I got stung by one in the throat one day, and I'm like, gee, how does this fall up or anything? But it wasn't, it wasn't any different than any other bumblebee. Right. It's just, it, it, yeah, it, they're still, and then the swarms, swarms by nature, uh, by definition, are not aggressive, because it's a swarm that is actually gorging itself on honey and going out and looking for another home. So, you know the move the the movies that you see in the TV shows and that you know you see a swarm a swarm is probably the safest bunch of bees that you're ever going to be around and they're also looking for a home so they they don't, don't have a home to defend yet so they've exactly. got other things on their mind right we got to go find they, one I don't have time they got to go find a home and they got to find it fast exactly so um, so the whole thing with the African bees then so they are more aggressive but they're also more aggressive with how they work. So they they just jam and they they build comb and they go out there and they're collecting nectar from the flowers and therefore then the drones are more uh, aggressive and the drones are the ones that mate with the queens so they're just they're like the alpha <laughs> bee in a sense they're just more aggressive they're just going to do better in the survival of the fittest the thing so they just kind of outperformed the European bees. And therefore, it's pretty much all African bees or Africanized bees, whatever you want to say. You know, it doesn't really matter the phrase, but we know what we're talking about. So, so they're just better at what they do, and they're more aggressive at what they do in all aspects. Do you think that poses a risk to the population of European honeybees in the U.S. eventually? Like, do you think they'll continue migrating north? Or is there a uh, limit uh, to where they can overwinter successfully and what have you? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's exactly it. There's going to be a limit at some point because they do not overwinter. It's just not an instinct that they have. So they're going to, if they get too far north, they're going to freeze. Okay. Or they're just, or they're just going to keep working even though the temperature is, you know, 55 degrees, 50, 45 degrees. Eventually they're just going to die because well, there's going to be no flowers and they just don't have that um, clustering instinct in the wintertime. Uh, so they will only they will only get so far north because of that reason, but you know. But what about the southern United States? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I I think that I think that the each state individually is going to have to make sure that their bee inspector and that their entomology departments and all of that are. are and I'm sure they are. I mean, I'm, I don't know. I'm just I'm saying. I hope I'm saying they will be in the future, but I'm, I don't know. I'm sure they already are totally on top of it. Because, you know, people view it as a safety issue, and of course it is. 
so, but um, they're just going to have to be extra diligent with, you know, uh, the fact that uh, of, of finding out where these hives are. Now, a really important thing for the beekeepers to do in that case, and actually everywhere, is to register your hives with the state. So the state knows where they are. So you can call them up. And, and like in Connecticut, it, you know, it's for you just where you just start a form and you draw them a little map and say, okay, this is where these are. It doesn't cost anything. Um, you fax in the form and, and you're all done. But that way, then like if you have an issue, you call the bee inspector. The bee inspector will come out and do his thing. Um, and if you have a, if you feel that your hive is too aggressive, then they could go out to your hive or take a sampling of bees and actually find out if they're Africanized bees or not. I got you. So, yeah, so the beekeeper has a responsibility to register their hives and, and if there's an issue and, and, and actually any disease too. If, they, if you're, if you feel that your hives uh, have a disease, if you, if the brood smells bad or if you find a lot of dead bees outside of the hive, you could call the, the, the state bee inspector and say, hey, I'm having a problem here. Can you come out and take a look? And, um, and they will. Gotcha, gotcha. So the people that are uh, interested in getting started, do you have a recommendation where to get equipment from? Yeah, the um, well, locally around here, I, you know, I do a lot of retailing of the equipment, but of course we just get it from a couple of the, the standards, which is Daydont, um, is uh, D A D A N T. I think they have really great um, equipment. It's very uniform, and this is for Langstroth hives and also for smokers and other things like that. Um, but you can order directly from them. They have a few offices in each region, you know, or at least an office in each region around the country. They're very helpful and they have a lot of knowledge. They, uh, publish the American Bee Journal, which is a great, uh, magazine that comes out every month on everything from hobby beekeeping right up to some of the studies that they're, you know, more technical stuff with, like we're talking about the neonicotinoids and colony collapse disorder and all of that. Uh, you know, I also go to Brushy Mountain Bee Farm. Um, for a lot of my equipment as well. Uh, when it comes to actually getting bees, uh, you could just look up honeybees or beekeeping and then put in your state. Um, you'll find a slew of beekeepers that are around. A lot of these beekeepers, especially if you're up in the northern parts of the United States or Canada, will have, um, uh, you know, a lot of these people actually go down and get honeybees in the spring. Um, and bring them back up because it's very expensive to mail them now. There's another thing. When I first started, we just used to get them in the mail. You know, now they charge too much for that. So in the springtime, and that's another thing with the shortage of bees. You want to, if you're serious about getting bees, you're going to want to contact somebody. Um, well, actually, you can even call them now, even though it's only October, and say, when should I get my orders in for bees? Some of these places will say, call me in January to get your bees for April, you know, or May, or whatever the case might be. So that's important. Um, but and, and also, uh, another thing I really want to mention, too, um, when you're looking up things on beekeeping, uh, a word of caution about all of this information that's on the Internet nowadays. There's a lot of great information. Just, no matter what you look up, you're going to find good information. You're going to find bad information. You know, when you find some information online, especially when it comes to some of these forums where everybody gets to throw in their two cents, you know, get some of this information together, whatever your questions are, but then talk to a local beekeeper <laughs> and confirm the information or say, okay, well, what now? What do we do around here? Because uh, you're down in Texas, right? You're down in Texas? Um, uh, yeah, in I spend my time in between Texas and Arkansas. Texas and Arkansas. Okay, so Texas, well, even between Texas and Arkansas, 
you might have the different things going on beekeeping wise, but now I'm in Connecticut, you know. So, you know, sure. if I'm reading your form in Texas and I'm saying, oh, I can do that, well, maybe I can't do that. I'm in Connecticut, you know. And somebody's in Michigan, another person's out, you know, in California or, or Utah, whatever the case might be, you know, it, there's a lot of information, a lot of great information, a lot of faulty information, but then, you know, beekeeping is agriculture, it's farming. So you have to know what's going on in your area as well. So, so talk to a local beekeeper or join a local bee group, beekeeping group, and get the correct information because you know, I've read things online where you know, this, I've read things that would actually kill a hive instead of help it. If somebody hmm. did what some of these things, you know, have said. I mean, that's a very extreme case, but I have read things and it's just like, wow, I don't believe it. So, you know, Hey, and especially when it comes to just a forum when anybody can put out information. I'm, I know everybody's trying to be helpful and, and all of that, but still, you want to make sure you're talking to somebody who's done it before because I, yeah, I've done it in the past, too. I, I've had hives. This year, I've had um, a couple of hives, you know, die on me. And it's I don't even know why, but it just some things just, you know, happen. Um, but anyway, getting together with somebody who's experienced is, is really going to save you a lot of time um, and heartache, you know, if you, if you do lose any bees. So, um, and that should be easy enough if you, if you do a little digging. Okay, great. Uh, and you have a pretty cool website, uh, kind of like a blog set up. You want to tell folks about that? Yeah, that's the, the blog that is going to expand into a website once the bee season is over and I have time to actually sit down at a computer mm-hmm. again. Um, but yeah, the blog is, uh, informational. It's happyary.com. And um, that's a combination of the word happy and the word apiary, which is a bee yard. So it's happyary, H-A-P-P-I-A-R-Y.com. My wife, Sharon, and I, um, we actually did a Kickstarter program at the beginning of the year. We got some some funding to add to our our hives. So uh, we're doing this as a business now. Uh, And Sharon, by the way, also is uh, really, she's really good at, baking, um, you know, and, and cooking with baking, but she has, and she's coming up with a, a lot of recipes that are wheat-free, uh, honey recipes. Um, she has an awesome um, a chocolate chip honey cake with peanut butter uh, frosting. It's just a killer. Um, but anyway, so she's putting together more of those recipes, and we're going to be getting those out as well. But um, yeah, right now it's a blog for information, and we want people to go to that. And uh, of course, they can write comments or even just write us emails, you know, from there and ask us questions. And uh, it'll be a full-fledged website as, as soon as I'm done extracting the last of the honey and uh, preparing the bees for the winter. Then I'll get back, and, and then we'll have a full-fledged website. Well, very cool, and uh, uh, it's good to hear you know you expanding your business using Kickstarter. We can finish you up with how how did that work out for you? I saw you had a Kickstarter. I was all happy. I'm like, we can help them. And then I, I when I pulled it up out of the the form you sent in, I'm like, well, they've already done it and they already met their goal. So, uh, what was the Kickstarter for, and and how did it work out for you guys? Yeah, it was that, it was great. Actually, I didn't even know about Kickstarter a year ago, but it was um, a friend of the. Of the family that um, I had uh, one of her projects on, so she was doing a little film and needed money for editing. So Kickstarter is a platform where you could put on your project, uh, your creative idea, whatever the case might be, and actually um, get funding by people going to this website, or you get people to this website and they can donate uh, towards your cause, and you can give them gifts and that sort of thing. So it was actually a lot of fun. It was very, it was very intense. So we put on our our idea because we'll be happy. 
the Bee Happy Company, our company is not just the beekeeping or a honey company. That, that's one phase of what we do is actually working with the bees and then uh, creating the hive products, the honey, you know, the bee wax, candles, gift baskets, lip balm, all of that sort of stuff. Um, but also what we're very much into is education and teaching people how to do this because we truly believe that what is going to really save the bee population and bring back the honeybees in force is a lot of people having, you know, one, two, three hives of their own. Um, instead of having these huge bee yards, which of course we still want to have some of those, but, uh, honey, honeybees and beekeeping are so fascinating that, that, that it, it's such a great family activity and it's something that you can do with very little space and in the long run, a smaller investment, a little bit up front, but as you stretch that out over the years, it's actually not much of an investment. It's something that everybody can do together, and it and it, it helps out actually your whole town. I mean, it helps out your local area with all the pollination and all that sort of stuff. So we want to educate people uh, about, you know, beekeeping, why bees are so important. And I think that's what really intrigued a lot of people about what we were doing. And so we ended up getting the interviewed, you know, on radio and TV and then having, um, you know, a couple of articles in the newspapers and people all over the state kind of caught on. And actually we got, you know, donations from people in other parts of the country and even overseas. So, so that was really great. So we became successful at that. And that's what really allowed us to really jumpstart our business because I've been doing this for 24 years, but still with only a few highs at a time myself, you know, now, uh, it's been full time this past uh, this past year, believe me, more than full time, and uh, but it's been great. So I mean, it was kickstarted that a lot of to, to actually go forward with it. So it worked out well. All right, well that's awesome. And uh, folks, with uh, that, we're going to wrap up here. I'll make sure I put a link to uh, Ned's uh, website and to the Kickstarter too, so you can take a look at what they did with that, as he was just explaining. And uh, with that, we'll sign off. Ned, thanks for you uh, being with us today. Uh, this was really a very informative and uh, happily quite a bit of a different look at beekeeping. So I appreciate you being with us today. Yes, Jack, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's my pleasure. All right, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today with uh, Ned Farrell, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution is you.